Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. We're going to talk about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about uh, a number of things. We're going to actually go in a kind of look at the periphery of the kingdom in order to understand the keys of the kingdom, the key elements of the kingdom. And we're going to even eventually look at the soul itself. What is the soul? And uh, we're going to go into that in uh, even in, in sort of a mystical level of understanding what the soul is. And... Just to give you kind of a heads up, if you look up the word soul in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you're going to find uh, particular words that are translated soul. And they're not only translated soul. They're translated both in the Old Testament and New Testament. The word that we see as soul is translated life quite a bit, as well as a number of other different translations, even person, etc., etc., so what is the soul? Is the soul life? And uh, there's a lot of different opinions. We'll take a look at quantum mechanics and what they, some uh, mechanics of the quantum theories think uh, the soul is and try to figure it out ourselves. But the purpose of trying to figure out something like this is not just to entertain you, but to help you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to go in a particular direction with your life, with your soul. And, uh, you know, it's the, the subject's going to take you every, in every aspect of your existence. Because no matter where you go, there's your soul. <laughs> your soul goes with you. And, and it, it, so understanding a little bit about it will understand a little bit about the journey. But it doesn't do you any good unless you take that journey, unless you seek that kingdom. So, I'm going to start off with 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. So I, I often quote faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty. I put I kind of put them all together. And we take a look at faith, and we take a look at hope, and we take a look at charity. And that word charity that we see there is agape. And it is translated charity. About 27 times in the Bible. You don't even find the word charity in the Old Testament. But the same word that you see translated charity is also translated love. When Paul says it, it's often translated charity. But when Jesus says it, it's translated love. So is love charity and charity love? Well, there are forms of what we call charity today that is not love. That actually weaken people and make them ill and lead them away from the kingdom of God. And so, all charity is not created equal. And so, all love is not created equal. Some love is devouring. Some love is destructive. But it's not real love. It's not God's love. Is is the love from heaven, the love of God for us, not us love for God, but God's love for us, that's a love that giveth life. 
But the love that the devil has for us, evil, whether you want to create a devil in your mind or your imagination, the other side of the coin, an opposing force to the love of God, that is a love too. That is a lustful love. But that love taketh away life. And so understanding, you know, those basic concepts don't necessarily always draw a picture in your head of what the devil looks like or whatever because he he can look like he can appear as an angel of light according to the Bible. And so what you want to know is understanding what real love is because real love giveth life. And if you look at John fifteen thirteen, greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. So they're telling you something about love. And and that word we see is love there. That's the word that Paul translates, or, or when Paul says it, they translate it into charity. In 1 John 3.16, we also see, Here, Hereby perceiveth we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. Now, this is in the epistle. This is in the gospel. I just quoted the gospel. Now we're quoting the epistle. Lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So this love thing is very important. And when and you see in John fifteen thirteen when he says, Greater love hath no man this, that a man lay down his life. That word life there in the text is the same word that is normally translated Soul. <laughs> so, you know, you lay down his soul for his friends. The, the, it's the same word in both places. The same as you see in First John 3.16, where he says, Hereby perceiveth we the love of God, because he laid down his life, his soul, for us. And we ought to lay down our lives, soul, for the brethren. Same word, soul, there. But we see it translated life. Now, if they originally wrote these things in Greek, and they used the word soul, and we translate soul sometimes lives, lay down our lives for the brethren, lay down our souls for the brethren, does it make sense when you use the word soul? But yet it makes sense when you use the word lay down our lives for the brethren. Well, the reason it doesn't make sense both ways is because you don't understand the word that is being translated into lives or the word being translated into soul because it's the same word. It has the same meaning. Why, why is it difficult to understand? Why do we have to change the word to mean something else? You start doing that enough, and it's certainly done enough in the biblical translations, you can start distorting the original message really quick. And if you look at all the other things that we talk about, you know, what is an altar? What is an altar of stones, a gathering of stones? What is an altar of clay? You can see that you can, you can create an entire religious philosophy, literally void of religion. <laughs> Because you change the meaning of that word too. 
And we're often taking a look at the, the mean of these words. And so how, how do you know what's true? And those of you who have heard me talk about the Hebrew language that, you know, most every single word in the Hebrew language has three letters. I mean, that is predominant. They have three letters, all of which are consonants, none of which are vowels, which makes it very difficult to pronounce. And because it was never written to be pronounced. It is not somebody talking a language and then they discover an alphabet and they say, okay, let's, uh, let's write this language out with these key sound alphabet and then we will be able to write down what we're saying. No. Hebrew language was written before it was spoken. It was an invented language. It's a code within a code within a code. <laughs> And it's not that difficult to understand, especially with a little bit of revelation, which is how God said he was going to build his church, how Christ said he was going to build his church through revelation. Well, where does revelation come from? Well, I'll tell you. Revelation comes through the soul, through the life of the man. That's where revelation comes through the life, comes through the life, not from the life, but through the life. Through the soul. That's where revelation comes from. Revelation of God. Now, you can actually have a revelation. If you can have a revelation of God from heaven, the creator, the giver of life, the giver of souls. Then can you also have a revelation from the other realm that we call hell, where the devil dwells or resides or holds jurisdiction can you have revelation from there and how do you know which revelation is which revelation uh, and, and where it's coming from well you, you, the way you really know <laughs> is revelation <laughs> it's, it's through faith the blind see not the, the deaf hear not and if you cannot hear God, you know, and God tell, talks about this. If you go this way, this is what's going to happen. You're, you're going to be under dictators that will take and take and take and take and take and take. They'll lie to you, deceive you, abuse you, and you'll cry out, and I will not hear you. And he will not hear you because you have judged not to hear him. As you judge, so shall you be judged. Quid pro quo. This is the nature of the universe. I don't change those rules. It's just I observe them and I tell you that's the way it works. So, where do you repent? You do not repent in the tree of knowledge. You repent in spirit, in life, in your soul. That's where you repent. You cannot conjure up repentance any more than you can conjure up the Holy Spirit or revelation of God. You can imagine you will. And the vain soul imagines that he has seen God or hears God or that he has faith. And he uses all kinds of tools to manifest that imagination. But it's not true. It's not real. And so we're going to talk about a lot of these things and bring up you know, specific ways in which you delude yourself. Because you have believed not just one lie, but many lies that all come down to one lie. You believe you have faith. You believe you have love. 
But do you? Do you really? Are you in need of repentance? Thinking a different way. So anyway, uh, one interesting term that came up to me this week was uh, biomimetics. I mean, it's almost hard for me to say. Biomimicry is another way to put it. And that has to do with the imitation of the models, systems, and elements of nature for the purposes of solving complex human problems. You know, like if you if you wanted to create flight where man can fly, you look at birds' wings, and it gives you an idea how to make wings and how to fly, and how to you know how to create aircraft, and how to glide upon the winds, because you see the birds doing it, and the same one in construction and in weaving and. You know, a bird makes a nest and it gives you an idea on how to make cloth and how to make, uh, fabricate things. It gives you an idea and then you can take that and expound upon that and make things better. Somebody asked me just yesterday, how come there are so many different kinds of barbed wire? Which I thought was kind of a, you know, it, it was a simple question and he, he's just, he's not a rancher, he's not a farmer, he, he doesn't deal with barbed wire. He just made the observation there are lots of different kinds of barbed wire. Why are there so many different kinds? Well, there's different kinds of metals that they use to make wire with. Different Barbed wire is made by a machine. And so you make a machine, you know, that cuts, the, it twists the wire a certain way and puts uh, the barbed pieces in that are cut in a certain way. And, and that machine runs and makes barbed wire. And then somebody makes an improvement on the machine and now the wire looks slightly different. And then they make another improvement on the machine and the wire looks even more different. And they maybe change the alloy of the metal, you know, like a gaucho wire versus the regular barbed wire. And it, it, it looks different because of the way in which it is manufactured and the materials in which it's manufactured after out of so that's that's just an example of how things can change but back to biomimicry they're actually looking at i mean the there's an inexhaustible almost seemingly inexhaustible source of information by looking at nature observing nature and it telling you something about things that you might want to create or build or but it also tells you something about the God of nature. How nature works will tell you something about the God of nature. Well, the God of nature is the creator of heaven and earth. How things work in nature. And, and Jesus talks about this, you know, reading the signs in the sky. How is it that you can tell this, but you cannot tell the signs of God and what God is doing? Because... They, the two, that's biomimicry. That nature tells you how God operates and how God works. And, and a good example of that in, you know, a bird loves its chicks, builds a nest, uh, lays eggs, hatches out the eggs, and then works diligently to go and get food, you know, seeds or whatever, and eat them, but then doesn't keep the food for itself. Gives the food to its chicks. Uh, even the prey birds go out and they hunt fish. There's an osprey near here. I see them all the time when I go to work this summer. 
and I would see him. I almost never saw him. He always would perch on a on a pole nearby where I had to go to the field, and he would, and he would always fly up as I went by. And he, every time he flew up, he had a fish in his claws or a rat or a mouse or something in his claws. And he would fly over to his nest, which was over in a, a little distance away. And he would take it. But it always seemed to do it just when I went by. Well, he had it there. And he wasn't eating it. But he had already caught it. And he was ready. And he knew he was going to go over there and feed. But he was waiting for something, I guess, for me to walk by. <laughs> and then he would fly over and he'd feed his young. Huge amount of effort in this process of loving his chicks. Well, you know what else he loves? He loves fish. <laughs> he loves the the meat of uh, mice and rats that he would eat. And voles. We, we loved it when he would get voles. Voles are a real problem in the field. He loves those. But the love he has for the bowl and the fish is not the same as the love that he has for his chicks. It, but yet we call them both love. He loves fish. And he loves his chicks. We're using the same exact word to describe both. But the love, the result of the love is different. He's laying down his life daily, his time, his energy, and everything to get food for his chicks. But he's taking the life of the fish, of the rat, and the vole in order to feed his young. So, we use these terms like love. What do we mean? How do we mean it? What kind of love are we talking about here? And so, this is going to be important as we as we explore this idea of uh, of God's creation and how God's creation works, because we're we're seeking the kingdom of God. So, and there's lots of kingdoms out there, but all those kingdoms are not the kingdom of God. They're the kingdoms of men that are created by men, and those kingdoms created by men are created by men who may be receiving revelation from God. Or they may be receiving revelation from one of the gods many. You know, the god of death and destruction and devouring and, and abuse. So which, which god did they are they worshiping? And now I'll throw out another little idea. We're going to take a little sidetrack here just for a second. We, we see these people who uh, go out and kill all kinds of people. They murder. They, they, sometimes they just maybe go and kill their children and their wife. And then they what they do is they kill themselves. And, uh, and, and we were just talking about uh, the uh, presence of somebody there to stop. Somebody, there was a shooting up in a mall in uh, Oregon, which was a gun-free zone. And uh, there was a former security guard happened to be shopping at the mall. He used to be a security guard at that mall. And he had a concealed gun permit. And so he had his gun on him. And technically that was a gun-free zone, so he was not supposed to have that gun on him. And of course, in comes a guy with a, like AR-15. And he starts shooting people. And he, he didn't shoot very many people, but he started shooting people. And he obviously was prepared to shoot a lot more. And this guy 
was there on the scene. He just happened to be on the scene. And he had his gun with him. And he pulls out his gun and he gets behind a pillar once he figures out what was going on. And he points his gun at the guy. He's about to shoot the guy, but he can't because there's there's customers running around behind him. And he's afraid, well, if I miss him, the bullet... The guy is very good because you always have to look at line of sight in case I miss or in case the bullet goes right through him. Am I going to hit somebody else that I don't want to hit? And he was careful not to shoot. But the shooter saw him pointing a gun at him from way over behind this pillar. And he immediately went to take cover. And he ran down a hallway. And he went to the end of the hallway and shot himself. He killed himself. Now that's a pattern we see all the time that these shooters shoot other people and then they kill themselves. What is going on there? There is a there is a pattern that we see repeated over and over again. Now this guy wasn't actually even shot at. He wasn't uh he wasn't cornered by a SWAT team. Was this a civilian with a pistol uh, at a fairly good distance away hiding behind a pillar who just pointed a gun at him and he runs down a hallway and kills himself instead of fighting it out. Something, it's like he triggered. and So now I'm, I'm no longer in the murder and mayhem mode. I am in, now have moved into the self-destruct mode where I kill myself. And that's a pattern we see over and over and over again in these uh, these killing rampages that take place where they turn the gun on themselves and kill themselves. That is not a coincidence. That is That is a pattern in nature that does not come from the God of Heaven. It comes from the other realm, the realm of destruction and self-destruction. And there's a reason why that pattern follows in in those course of events and we may get to that eventually and who else in biblical history do we know that followed that same pattern it was Saul Saul who was a great guy defender of the weak but was given power to be king to be a ruler over other people even though the people were warned that if you do this, you're doing it first because you have already rejected God that God should not reign over you. And second, because, you know, you were told that he would take and take and take and take and take and take and take. And you would eventually cry out and God would not hear you. And you did it anyway. But the power that Saul was given corrupted him until the point where he was losing everything and then he had to kill himself. He had to fall upon his own sword. He tried to get somebody else to kill him, but they wouldn't do it. So he fell on his own sword and killed himself. A pattern. Why that pattern? We'll talk about that when we come back.
So welcome back. So this idea of self-destruction after creating mayhem is the result of a pattern. And I'm telling you that that pattern comes from a particular realm and is imposed upon the life of the individual. And how do you know? Now, in these extreme cases, people are killing all kinds of people with a, a violent assault rifle. Uh, whatever an assault rifle is, we can talk about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, it isn't the assault rifle's problem. It isn't the gun's problem. It's the spirit that dwelleth in the man. Now, is he possessed by that spirit? Is that controlling his actions? Well, probably. And uh, what does, but what does that spirit consist of? Is it, you know, like something out of Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist? Is it that kind of spirit or is it simply a pattern? Uh, I've been talking, thinking about this, talking about what the soul is. And of course, soul and spirit seem almost inseparable. Uh, they, those terms are overlapping a lot of times in, in the biblical text. But yet, they have two different terms, so they must be two different things, even though they may seem to be separate. I mean, man is composed of supposedly a body, a soul, a life, a living man, and a spirit. And when when the man dies, his body dies, the soul and the spirit are departeth, are, are no more. So, it's no longer a man. It's a corpse. And so, these are concepts based on some sort of shifting of what is defined as our reality. Is there a soul? You know, the quantum physicist thinks there is not a soul. You know, some quantum physicists. Actually, there's there's a certain number of quantum physicists that are actually... <laughs> veering the other way and beginning to think, well, there is a soul. And, and the argument of the quantum physicist that there is no soul is he says there is no room in the uh, a theory, which is, is interesting. There's no room in a theory because the theory doesn't take up a room. <laughs> it doesn't take up space. But there's no room in the theory for this, you know, a, a soul particle, a spiritual particle. They, they, there's no accounting for it. And well, it will be eventually my contention in this series that uh, the scientific dipstick that is measuring the existence of uh, reality does not reach into the realm in which the soul exists. And just to give you a little hint, a soul is multidimensional. It uh, and and science right now their dipstick doesn't reach beyond this dimension. They believe there are other dimensions, uh, parallel dimensions to our own. Quantum physics, string theory, membrane theory, all these things believe that there are multiple dimensions outside of the dimension in which we dwell. Our bodies exist, but. Uh, and they only believe this because they see evidence popping in and popping out of our dimension that there is another dimension. They are not actually seeing into the other dimension because they, their dipstick does not reach that far. <laughs> so, uh, 
It doesn't go into that. But now they're trying to figure out a way of getting into that other dimension. And that's why they're building, you know, million dollar, um, these, uh, cyclotrons and, and, uh, you know, like CERN and, uh, trying to look into those other dimensions. Well, it's very possible that through Revelation, men have already seen those other dimensions and have identified them in the biblical text as heaven and hell. That those are other dimensions, parallel dimensions to our own. And in heaven, the rule of existence bringeth forth life. In hell, they bringeth forth death. And uh, that your death gives life to them. Gives your life to them. You lay down your life for them and they offer you things in return. And that's why you lay down your life for them. <laughs> but your life is consumed. And, uh, you know, I've actually seen birds know that a cat is there in the yard. And they know the cat is a threat. And yet they go down on the ground near the cat. They're not eating. They're dancing around, hopping around in the grass near the cat. And the cat's watching them. And they know the cat is there. He's scrouched down, but his tail is flicking back and forth. And the bird is like tempting the cat, trying to get the cat to jump on him. And eventually the cat does, but the bird is always kind of knows his limits and knows how to jump out of the way. He's kind of like playing with danger. And uh, so there, there's some sort of natural relationship going on there. And, of course, the reason birds are so good at flying is because cats are so good at jumping. <laughs> if cats were not good at jumping, birds would not be as good at flying. Uh, so, one stimulates the other to uh, to an existence uh, of, uh, of great achievement. And the ones that don't reach that existence of great achievement, of being able to pop into the air and fly away instantly, become dinner for the cat. And the cat loves them either way. <laughs> because it gives the cat a sense of power. We see this process in nature. And man is a part of nature. But man is supposed to have dominion over nature. And not be subject to these whims of nature. These these rules of nature. He's supposed to be made in the image of God. So that he rises above that. So anyway... So that was another little sidetrack there, but back to uh, this idea of the God of nature and uh, uh, who is the God of nature? Well, in some traditions, uh, it's Dionysius is the, the God of nature, who is also the God of wine and the God of vegetation, the God of pleasure, the God of festivities. You know, the Roman equivalent to Bacchus, which is, uh, and there's another one uh, a goddess uh, gay you know this this goddess of the earth and this personification of this goddess this mother goddess mother nature kind of thing but the god of creation is really the god of nature and uh, these are perversions of those original ideas where people began to fall to the idea of not laying down their not life for their neighbor but in self-indulgence. And that that's actually going the other way. So that's a, that's a God from the other realm. 
at least as, you know, when we look back in history, we're looking at a particular point in history and we see this is the way they describe it at that point in history. Possibly, whatever they called Dionysus or Bacchus was another god uh, in the minds of other generations and had different characteristics. But at least at that time, it was the god Bacchus of wine and self-indulgence, etc. And it was really where man where man fell to nature, fell to his uh, animal nature, where he was simply satisfying his own feelings, his own uh, being, his own fancies and feelings. But is love a fancy or a feeling? Actually, true love of God is neither a fancy or a feeling. It may generate a feeling, but it's not a feeling. It may generate a fancy, but that fancy is manifested as what we call faith. And that faith in God causes us to act as God. And God, how does God act? He is a giver of life. He lays down his life so that others may live. And that, of course, every parent is given that opportunity to lay down their life so that their children may live. And some parents do that, but some parents try to live through their children. And they actually try to manipulate their children so that they can live their failed life through the success of their children. So, one leads to more life and the other one leads to destruction. One leads to love that gives life and the other one leads to a love that taketh life away. And so, you know, we're using the same terms like love, to describe different realities at the opposite end of our own present existence. And, of course, that's what heaven and hell are. They're dimensions at the opposite or realms, you can call them realms, at the opposite end of the dimension in which we live, in the realm in which we live, this, this world in which we exist. And so, you can actually, you know, a person who loves lascivious lifestyle, a lustful lifestyle, is actually being drawn towards that realm we call hell. And a person who is uh, giving and forgiving is drawn towards the realm we call heaven. So, what does all this have to do with understanding the soul? Well, what is the soul again? Again, I say the soul is a multidimensional has a multi-dimensional existence. But really what we see as the soul, most of the time, is more like what you would call software. Software in your computer operates, does things, follows patterns, etc. But the creator of that software is not in your computer. The software originally existed only in the minds of the author who created that software. But it wasn't until it went into your computer that it could manifest and pull things up on your screen and and make things and do calculations and communicate all across the world through the Internet to this software, which originally only existed in the mind of the Creator, but was given an existence in the power of your computer. Electrons flowing around in in your computer, the the atoms that compose your screen, all those things are resulted 
that what you see is resulting from the manifestation of the original software that lived in the mind of the creator of that software. Now, somebody else can come along and reprogram that existing original software and cause the software to do something different. Now, yeah, I've talked to you before about, you know, vampires and werewolves and, and zombies and all these things that we create in literature are, are supposed to be terrifying and frightening things. And we make scary movies about them and everything, and they are scary. But the reason they are is because there's a certain truth to them. Because there are vampires out there. There are werewolves out there. There are zombies out there. And, but we don't call them zombies. We call them, you know, like liberals. <laughs> you know, that was the, the joke with Bob Hope where somebody was describing a zombie to him and he said, well, they, they're mindless, soulless creatures that wander around, uh, you know, not caring who they hurt. And he says, oh, you mean like Democrats? <laughs> so, that was in a movie. That was actually in a movie. It was kind of funny, but there's a certain truth to it. But the reality is is, is that uh, what's frightening about those creatures is there are people who live off of other people's lives. They, they suck the life out of other people. They are psychic and emotional vampires. There are people who are wolves in sheep's clothing, you know, where they can turn on you and devour you and bankrupt you and steal from you and beat you up in the alley. And those are your werewolves. And they will seem like your friend and all of a sudden they will turn and they will turn on you and devour you. I mean, we, we all see that. So the idea of these creatures is... Is and why they're frightening is because the spirit of that is real. And so when a person goes to sleep and they dream and they dream about a werewolf or a Frankenstein monster or whatever it is, it's because they know real people like that. And then they accentuate it and then you make a movie about it and you make a million dollars because everybody wants to go see that cool movie. And be frightened. And be frightened by something on the screen that's not real. And so it gives you a sense <laughs> and feeling that you, you get from that, which you now call entertainment. But the reason it's frightening is because it is real. It is a real spirit that flows through society. And there are real vampires and werewolves out there. And, uh, you know, people try to lock them all up in prisons, but it doesn't work that way. That spirit is still around. So back to this idea of the, the creator, uh, this uh, creator deity that uh, exists somewhere that caused everything to come into motion. That's one thing that science has been saying, oh no, it's the Big Bang and then we're all just random results of billions of years of evolution and there is no God. And then the opposing idea is that there is intelligent design. Well, the best argument for intelligent design is modern science. Because the statistical... They used to think that in order to create a planet that could sustain life, all you needed was the right-sized sun, the right-sized planet, and a certain number of chemicals, and then life would eventually occur. And that as long as that planet was rotating in a stable solar system, 
that it would exist. And then they discovered that, well, no, that's not true. If we didn't have gigantic planets like uh, Jupiter and uh, Saturn and, and Neptune out there, uh, theirs would probably be totally pelted with uh, meteors would be hitting it. But these big planets actually absorb those meteors and we don't get hit as often. And then they found another parameter that you needed and another parameter that you needed. And and so now there's, you know, there's hundreds of parameters that you need in order to bring about life. So now the number of stars that could support a planet that could support life have been dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. So the odds of having life on any planet at all are are becoming much more unlikely that there's life on other planets. I mean, much, 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 statistically speaking. But these are all speculations in their own theory. So they're, they're revising, revising, revising that. But the reality is, if you look on this planet, there's life everywhere. You can go up to the Arctic and there's algae growing in the ice, turning the ice pink. Uh, there's life out in the deserts. There's seeds that lay dormant for a hundred years and waiting for rainfall and and animals that change their sex and or when there's no other you know male and females around they'll they'll change in order to reproduce and life finds a way so to speak to exist but this is all just random you look at the complexity of just a single cell and its immune system they're saying well, how did this come about? Statistically, it's becoming absolutely impossible to believe. So again, the point is is that the best argument for intelligent design is science. Uh, just statistics are beginning to show that this just could not, this complex an existence could not have come about by accident. Uh, but there are going to be people that resist that forever probably but the reality is is that that is that is what the god of nature and nature's god has put into motion but now how does intelligent design actually function in this realm is god continuously creating in this realm reprogramming you so to speak reprogramming your soul in this realm. And if you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, are you seeking to be programmed by God, meaning made perfect in the ways of God? Do as God would do. And is that reprogramming simply a mental operation where you learn, oh, God wants me to do this, so now I'm going to go out and do that. Then you're kind of self-creating. No, God's programming has to reprogram the soul, the life of the person. And then the body will follow that. The mind will follow that. You do not, de- you do not decide to follow God with your brain. Because your brain is the tree of knowledge. You, you, you follow God when you eat of the tree of life. Wait a minute tree of life? Is that the tree of soul? Is that the same word? (laughs) Because we know that the word that they translate into soul also is translated into life. So, 
How does the revelation of God, the plan, the software of God, program itself into the realm in which you live? Now, this is really a key to the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God operates as a political institution that replaces the need to have the political institutions created by men, other software writers. <laughs> you want God to be the software software author of your soul, of your life. And so how do you do that? How do you let God write his software upon your heart and upon your mind. Your heart is a physical representation of you. Your mind is the mental representation of you. But he writes upon those things through your soul. How do you get God to be your author? The author of yourself. Do you decide that in your mind? Is that an intellectual decision? You read the Bible and you say, I really like this God guy. I really like what Jesus says. And so I'm going to follow them by your own choice. Or do you decide down in your soul and God writes upon your heart and your mind? Now, God wants you to have choice. So when you decide in your soul, he's not taking away that choice. He's allowing you to make that choice but you make it at the very heart of your life, not in the mind alone. The mind follows the soul. The body follows the mind. There's a guy, Roy Masters, who um, wrote a book years ago, Your Mind Can Keep You Well. Well, yeah, it could. <laughs> but what keeps your mind well? Can you fix your mind with your mind? No. Your soul can keep your mind well, and then your mind can keep your body well. (laughs) You've got to get down to the essence of your being, this soul, this life. When you take away the soul, the body dies. You know, now, that's an interesting question, though. Could, Could you take away the soul and support the body on artificial means, you know, like pump the heart, pump the air into the body, and the body just stays alive even though the soul has departed. Could you cut the soul partway off from the body so that it had very little control of the mind and the body? Could you go to a... If if you lived in the spirit, if you had the power that God wanted all men to have this dominion over the life of this planet, because you were led by God, you were a man of truly a man of God. Could you walk into a hospital and touch somebody in a coma and reconnect their soul with their body? Their brain turns back on, their body begins to function, and they arise and walk. Could you do that? Should you be able to do that? Well, technically, yeah, you should be able to do that. If you're if you're a part of and living from that life of God, that soul of God, that he's the software operator of your being. You should be able to do that. But you would only do that if God said to do that. He wanted that done. Then you could go and do that. Now, that would be a very dramatic event. But what about day-to-day events? 
Again, you know, we the same principles of self-destruction, destroying others and then self-destruction, go on daily in families all over the world, in businesses all over the world, where people are destroying the lives of their children and then destroying their own life. How does that all work? Well, we're going to talk more about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. back to keys of the kingdom so we've been talking about this idea of the soul and god of nature and nature's god and how god affects intelligent design in the world now obviously god if there is intelligent design and there has there's more and more reasons every day to believe that there is intelligent design that there is some sort of force in the whole of universe all dimensions and realms of the universe that is acting upon the realm in which we are trying to observe nature and causing certain things to come about because of an intelligence from somewhere. We we talk about heaven and hell being other dimensions. And so heaven has a certain characteristic, hell has a certain characteristic, and both of them have a pattern and produce patterns and designs in the universe. And you will see the product of those designs manifested in nature, in this biomimicry, where uh, the biology of the universe, the nature of the universe, is an imitation, is a pattern, a model, a system of other realms. And since there are multiple dimensions, according to the quantum physicists, there would be multiple patterns that would be appearing from other sources operating in the realm in which you live. How does the, how do those patterns manifest themselves in this realm? How, how do they influence this realm? What is the channel through which they are able to come into this realm and assert their model pattern software system into this realm. Well, we know in Revelation that God of heaven, the God of the good God of the Bible, is talking about writing upon your hearts and upon your minds. That's something that we see both in Old Testament and New Testament. Well, there, there's the pattern. The software of God, the software pattern of God is to be written upon your heart and your mind through life, through the life of God. You tap into the life of God and His revelation writes upon your heart and your mind and it controls what your body is going to be doing, what your 
you know, how you're, you're going to do things. One thing that has always astounded me or fascinated me is that I see people making decisions. We talked about this last week. People make decisions to do this, to marry this person, to, to homeschool, to whatever. And we think that they're, they're doing this because of this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. They tell you, well, I'm doing this because this reason, this reason, this reason. And, and I pointed out somebody was talking about homeschooling their children and they said, well, we just decided this because God put it on our hearts. Which is, that's a fascinating reason to do something. You, you have no logical reason to do it. But God just put it on your heart. Now, in truth, that's why we started homeschooling our kids. But because I'm a reasonable person, an intellectual person, I, I started pondering, well, why couldn't we do that? <laughs> well, we could teach first grade. We're smart enough to teach first grade. That's not a hard thing. And, and the school is, you know, 40 miles away. It'd be several hours a day on the bus for a six-year-old kid. Why don't we just teach him first grade? That'd be okay. We got the time. My wife didn't have to work outside the home. She worked. Uh, there's plenty of work to do on a farm. <laughs> she didn't have to go get another job. And uh, so, you know, we could teach him first grade. And we liked our kids. <laughs> so we kept them home and began to teach them. Then we got more reasons when we started looking at how the other kids in school were learning. They were way behind our kids. After only a few months, our kids were way ahead of the kids their same age that were going to school. And then as we got farther into it, we started seeing that what they're teaching in school was not good. And the, and the morality of the kids, I mean, there was, uh, you know, the promiscuity in the older kids. And we're thinking, well, we don't really want to expose our kids to all that kind of stuff. And the ideas uh, that were then, you know, when I started looking for school books, First grade, second grade, and I got 1945 books and 1929 books and, and 1960 books and 1980 books. I started seeing, well, the books are changing. You know, they, they require a higher skill in math in the fifth grade in 1945 than they do in the eighth and ninth grade today. And kids could not get graduating from high school could not answer some of the first problems in a 5th grade and 4th grade math book from before the 1945. They couldn't answer those questions and they had already graduated from high school. And you say, like, well, why is that? So, I mean, we had... The point is, is that we we had these reasons. Now, that when people say, why are you homeschooling? Well, da, 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 da. You know, but they'll be socially retarded. No, actually, the studies show that they're not socially retarded. That actually, if you send your kids to school, they become socially retarded because they become good at only dealing with other children their age. While if they homeschool, they not only can deal with kids their age, but kids at other ages and adults. And they interact in a wider range in society if they're homeschooled. Now, of course, people can botch the homeschooling job, but uh, overall, their scores are higher, they're better adjusted, they're bigger contributors to the community. And these are all reasons afterwards. But why did we originally do it? 
because God wrote it upon our hearts to do it. <laughs> and then we thought up all these reasons why you could do it. And we've now written those reasons down in books and booklets and web pages so that other people who God is putting it on their hearts to homeschool their kids, but their parents are giving them a hard time, their brothers and sisters are giving them a hard time, the people at work are giving them a hard time, their neighbors are giving them a hard time. And they say, well, why are you doing this? And they can't quite bring themselves to say because God has put it on our hearts. <laughs> that's that's insufficient because maybe some of these people are atheists or don't believe that. Well, God never put it on my heart. And so we give them other ammunition to throw at them, other reasons. But secretly we know because God put it on your heart. Now, why does God put it on the heart of one person and not on another? Well, now that you have to ask God. But the reality is I think on a lot of people, God is putting it on their hearts. But they're not listening to God. Now, some people, God may be letting them put their kids in public school for some reason. I'm not going to second guess God. That's one of the things about the kingdom is one size doesn't fit all. Now, one way fits all. But the way is not physical. The way is spiritual. The way is in your soul. So you have to you have to give people the allotted choice of following what God is writing on their hearts and upon their minds. And so, anyway, so the God of nature, the God of creation, not the, you know, the God that we mentioned that uh, the Greeks ended up, the God of self-indulgent uh, Bacchus and, uh, or Dionysus. Uh, not that God. So anyway, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, and, and most people today, this is one of the things we saw uh, when we were teaching our kids at home, is that the true story that led up to the Declaration of Independence has been removed from history class. And what was really going on in America at that time and before has been removed from history class. So very few people really understand what that was all about and what what they were saying. But we see in the Declaration of Independence where they talk about the law of nature and nature's God and how that entitles the people, endows the people by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And the supreme judge, which we assume is God of the world. Now, some people say that that's the devil <laughs> that they're talking about. But the supreme judge would not be the devil of the world for the uh, restitute of our intentions that they, they look to for, which is really what you're saying is we're looking to the Holy Spirit. Now, that... I, I can't say what those guys actually meant when they wrote all this stuff out. But they were they were struggling trying to figure out certain things. and uh, But a lot of people say, well, they were all deists. Well, well, maybe, but the reality is and we have an article up on deism and deists. And uh, you, it actually is at preparing you. You just look up the word deist and you can find the article. The word deism back in those days didn't mean the same thing that deism means today. It is absolutely clear that many of these people would not fit that, that we call deists, and might have even called themselves deists, 
what they believe does not fit what deism is defined as today. So, that's very important. When you look at, when somebody's saying that, oh, this is this or that is that, by what definition are we using? Are we using the definition back then? You know, like, what is religion? Who is practicing religion? Almost nobody is practicing religion as the word was originally defined. Uh, most people are, because they, they've redefined religion and you think you're a religious person because you think this about God. Well, that wasn't what religion was. Religion was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. But people don't do that. They don't, they don't have the pious performance of that duty. They don't even know what the word pious means anymore because they changed the meaning of that word. And, and we started out this little series talking about the word love. You know, when Paul uses it, they translate it charity. When Jesus uses it, they translate it love. And when we see the word soul, it's translated all kinds of different ways. Depending on wherever they wanted to use it. You know, and however they wanted to use it. You know, if you if you look at the word in the Old Testament, we'll just briefly look at that. We'll, we'll come back. It's nephesh. Which is translated soul 475 times. And so you say, well, that's the meaning of the word. Well, yes, but then 117 times they translate it life. 29 times person. 15 times they translate it mind. 15 times they translate it as heart. 9 times creature. 8 times body. I mean, there's, there's a dozen other ways that they translate this noun that we call soul. Well, you begin to alter what the Bible means when you get to do that. Go to the New Testament. You know, uh, suke. Suke is the word they translate into soul. 58 times it appears as soul. 40 times it appears as life. Three times as mind, one times as heart. Same, same idea. It is associated with the word, it means breath. You know, the breath of life. It means life. So, uh, and if you, if you go to, uh, Nefesh, it actually has its origins, you know, in, uh, you know, a living being. And it is, actually, it has a, it's from another word. And that other word that it's from is associated with this idea of breath. It's nafash, which actually is the, the, the exact same letters, but it uh, means, it's translated refreshed, but it actually means to take a breath. Refresh oneself, you know. <sighs> yeah, there's, there's the soul, where you take that breath. Um, so, both of the words have to do with breath. Both of them are translated life. Both of them are translated heart occasionally or mind occasionally. And uh, although nefesh has a lot more desire, uh, appetite, all there's, a like I say, a dozen other ways in which it's translated. And so, that can create a certain amount of confusion when you're trying to figure out what the soul is. But like I said, the soul is really kind of like software <laughs> or at least we we see it as a um it's programmed is where you begin to see the manifestation 
Is your soul programmed by God, the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth, a giver of life, someone who lays down his life for others, or is your soul programmed by someone who takes life, takes a bite out of one another, takes from one another, is covetous, and uh, wants power over others and control over others? So, when we see these examples in society of someone who goes out and kills, 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 and then kills himself, kills his children, kills his wife, kills himself, that's the power of a spirit that has overtaken him. He has been programmed by that spirit, and now he is going to fulfill the actions of that program, because something has invaded his soul. So, this brings me to a question I actually was going to ask at the very beginning of this. Do you have a belief or does your belief have you are you possessed by your belief or do you simply have a belief do you think something is true or is your belief a conviction is it controlling your actions and then when you say you believe in god which god is that that you believe in and uh, how do you know well, how is it program? How is the God you believe in programming your soul? How is it affecting your mind and your heart? What are you doing? Are you giving life to your children, or are you drugging your children? Are you uh, uh, emancipating your children or emaciating your children? Are you poisoning your children? What are you feeding your children? What are you allowing to be fed to the minds of your children? And see, this is why, you know, public school is so dangerous. Because of the fact that not only do the teachers not necessarily have your same mind, the curriculum may be teaching them falsehoods and leading them in the wrong direction and allowing their actions to create patterns in their own brain, writing upon their minds and upon their hearts patterns that will follow them forever. You know, if a child is put on drugs at a small age, his mind is not going to develop in the same way that it would have developed had he had to deal with the issues, you know, Ritalin, uh, uh, Adderall, all these other drugs. And most of these shooters, most all of these shooters, a vast majority of them, I don't know, it could even be all of them, have been on psychotropic drugs, often prescribed by a doctor. Amphetamines. I mean, you read the side effects. Is you know, it talks about anger, insomnia, violent behavior, suicidal thoughts. All these things are side effects from these drugs. And why are they given those drugs? Because somebody says you should get them. Why did you believe that person? Well... Have you already been traumatized to believe, you want to believe that they know what they're doing? You know, Frankenstein wasn't the monster. Frankenstein was the doctor. (laughs) Frankenstein was the doctor who created the monster. (laughs) It wasn't, the monster's name wasn't Frankenstein. (laughs) Just a little tidbit there, the thought to ponder. So, when, when when we're talking about these uh, and being endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, uh, we can lose those rights through contracts, and we've talked about that. But the reality is, is you don't just want your rights back. You want the programming of God back. 
You want the software of God back writing upon your heart and upon your mind. Because the software that's in you now has been rewritten by trauma, by others, with a different nature, with a different intent, uh, towards nature, a self-indulgent nature, not a lay-down-your-life nature. And so you have to turn around and start laying your life down. Not, you know, like I say, you don't have to jump on a grenade, but you have to start really worshiping God. Now, we just did a program uh, actually, it was a course. We give a course on Tuesday night. Everybody should go and uh, sign into that. Oh, you don't have to sign in. I mean, it's just a telephone number. You just call up and you're on the course. And you can ask questions about the topic. And we have a page on the topic and a side panel with links to other things that will tell you about the topic. But we just talked about worship. What is worship? And most people don't know what worship is. And they go to church and they, we're worshiping God. No, they're not. They've turned God into a fancy and a feeling. And they have a feeling that they produce by going to church and doing this, that, and the other thing, whatever they do in their church. But worshiping actually has to do more with the practice of pure religion. It is actually doing, bowing to the will of the Father, letting the Father write upon your heart and upon your mind. Why did they choose the king? Because they already decided not to let God rule in their hearts and in their minds. To write upon their hearts and their minds. They had already rejected the software of God. And so now they needed to fill that void with somebody else to rule over them. So they picked a ruler. So if you think that you can elect a president or prime minister or some sort of leader who's going to fix things. No, you're not. If you think that, somebody has already programmed you to think that that is the answer and it is not the answer. And I can tell you what's going to happen. No matter who you elect, he's going to take and take and take and take and take and take. He may take slower than if you elected this guy. <laughs> he may alter the parameters a little bit, but he is not your salvation. Your salvation is to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which means that you have to start taking responsibility for your life and start letting, laying down your personal desires for the benefit of others. You have to give up something for the welfare of others, the righteous welfare of others, so that you're giving life rather than taking life. Rather than seeking benefits at the expense of others, you're now seeking to benefit others by laying down part of your life. This is, this is turning around. This is repenting. So is there a soul? Is your subconscious mind just a part of your brain hidden away in the archives of the dendritic connections of your being? Is a belief a product of the mind? Or is belief a product of the spirit? Does it come through this thing we call soul? I mean, real belief. This thing that is going to give you conviction. You know, uh, what? where is that coming from? Is that simply coming from your subconscious, from your conscious mind, where you, you, you study the issue and now you believe this? Because that's all mental. That is not necessarily the belief of faith in a spiritual 
higher intelligence. And there's been a lot of people who disagreed with the fact, you know, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, who was supposed to be really smart uh, whenever, you know, if you remember Princess Bride, where the fellow says, um, you know, Aristotle, Plato, uh, Socrates, morons, all of them, you know, well, you can add Nietzsche to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yet, they were all very smart people. They're very highly intelligent people. Their minds were phenomenal. Uh, and, and mostly what Nietzsche was doing was attacking the hypocrisy of modern religion, modern religion for his day. And there was sim- there was certainly a lot of hypocrisy to attack. <laughs> so, And he was very good at it. He was a very smart guy. And I'm not really absolutely convinced that he didn't believe that there was a God by some of the things that he said. But he certainly didn't believe in the God of religion, of the modern existing religion. Marx could probably say the same thing. Uh, some of the things that Nietzsche said, I remember, in, in individuals, insanity is rare. But in groups, parties, nations, and epics, it is the rule. And so he was talking about this collective insanity. Well, actually, I think insanity in the individual is not that rare. <laughs> it certainly wasn't in the case of Nietzsche who became insane. <laughs> uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that because you don't want to become insane. So maybe we can learn something about how he became insane. But they, what it is is group insanity is easier to spot because it's magnified by the collective. I mean, very few individuals start world wars. <laughs> World wars are started by the collective. There may be individuals who are very much a part of the focal point of the collective, but the the devastation and death of millions of people is the result of a group effort, not an individual effort. And so, yeah, insanity is more observable in the group, but I don't know that it's any less uh, rare or more rare in the individual. Nietzsche was kind of a pessimist view of modern society and culture and he thought it was degenerate and all this stuff. Which, one of the problems with that, and and I can't disagree with that opinion, (laughs) but one of the problems with being that pessimistic uh, and holding that pessimistic view is, and especially if you're really intelligent, you can become very vain. And humility is a very important uh, part of your armor to protect from insanity. If you think you know it already, a number of people don't come on our study call on Tuesday night because they think they know it all already. Well, okay. <laughs> they can, they, they think they, we have nothing to share with them. Okay. And when they have a need, uh, and they find themselves on hard times, we don't have to share with them. We're sharing with them now. They should share their time with us. They should come together. I mean, that is part of the, you know, repent is think a different way. But seeking, it's pursuing something. And if you're pursuing, you should be gathering with others. Not only for what you can learn or get out of the experience or share in that experience, because we encourage people to ask questions on these study calls. But so that you can actually help one another in real ways 
And so then you have to show up in order to do that. In order to do it wisely, you need to know who you're dealing with. So that's why you need to come together. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about what some of these uh, philosophers believed so that we know. And we'll talk about why it is dangerous what some of them believed. You know, we'll kind of show you where the quicksand is at when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're going to try to tie this up a little bit here, but we're going to continue the series for more than just these two programs because finding out what your soul is and how it functions and how the power of God operates in you and how he programs your heart and your mind or writes upon your heart and your mind, as it says in the Bible. I'm just using this this analogy of programming. He only does that through the process of choice. He allows you to make that choice because there is no love without choice. He, he, he the, the Puppets don't love their puppet handlers. They don't have the capacity to love. Love is the result of choice. So that's that's very important to understand. But Nietzsche had choices and he had a brilliant mind. And he made lots of choices. And he had some theories that are absolutely true. But then where did he go wrong? Because you may know stuff that's absolutely true. But where are you going wrong? Because you want to know where that is. Because that's where the quicksand is. That's where the poison nettle is. That's where, you know, the the beasts lie in wait for you. And you don't want to get too close to that. They will devour you. Nietzsche thought by rising above mass culture which he was kind of pessimistic and, and critical of, very critical of. Society would produce a higher, brighter, healthier human being. Uh, he, he called this the overman, which is, uh, every time I hear that, uh, I think of the underman <laughs> from The Incredibles. So, uh, those of you who have seen that know what I'm talking about. But he that's what he called him, the overman. And, and and he thought of man in this progression of evolution that where we're just evolving over a long period of time and there is no God and and it's just coincidence and that if we create the right environment, we will get better people automatically as if we are self-creating, which is not a humble place to come from. So humility has gone. So now we right away, we're opening ourselves to... You know, we've, we've got a chink in our armor because we think we are gods and that we can create ourselves. And the reality is, is that we can't. We can choose to allow God of heaven and creation to create us or we can choose to have other gods recreate us. And there are gods many and there are rulers many. And we've talked about this in one of our last shows about how they use laws as social, you know, Cardoza used uh, 
laws as a instrument of social engineering, trying to regulate the development of mankind through externally imposed laws. Now, to some degree, you could say that that's what the Ten Commandments were, but the Ten Commandments were not laws where God would punish you if you did this, this, and this, because he doesn't prescribe any punishment. He's just saying that if you aren't, if you're killing people, you're off the track. If you're lying to people, you're off the track. If you're coveting each other's goods, you're off the track. These are guideposts trying to help you navigate through the wilderness. And if and if you go off the track, nature will provide the punishment. God doesn't have to do a thing. It's already built into the system. Yeah, as you judge, so shall you be judged. So anyway, Nietzsche believed that some people were able to become this superior individual through the use of willpower. He didn't have the idea, not my will, O Lord, but thine. He was the one through his own willpower would pull himself up by his bootstraps and recreate himself. And so he says things like, hence the ways of men part. If you wish to strive for peace of soul and pleasure, then believe. If you wish to be a devotee of truth, then inquire. Well, I don't entirely disagree with that uh but where do i disagree with that where, where do i agree with that i believe that to seek the peace of soul which will bring its own form of pleasure you don't seek pleasure you you seek the truth and christ says i am the truth and punch Pilate says what is the truth and so you seek the truth so inquiring is a good thing but who people are always telling you, you just believe. You don't need to know why. God is logical. You don't need to know why, but you can know why, because there is a reason why God does things the way God does things, and why certain things are good and certain things are bad. There's a reason. You don't always need to know that, but if you, there's no problem with inquiring, because the decision. To follow God and to let God write upon your heart and your mind is not a mental choice. It's a spiritual choice. It's that choice of that's made in your soul by your spirit. So again, what? wait a minute. Soul, spirit, are they the same things? They're used interchangeably? Not really. Uh, they are different things. But uh, how, how does that all work together? Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that Nietzsche thought about this overman. He says, I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great flood? And even go back to the beast rather than overcome man? What is the ape to man? a laughing stock of painful embarrassment. This is Nietzsche speaking. And man shall be that to the overman, a laughing stock of painful embarrassment. Well, embarrassment has to do with lack, you know, if something has affected your pride. But the humble man cannot be embarrassed. He's already humble. And he does not laugh at the inadequacies of creation any more than he would laugh at somebody who was crippled or injured or... Uh, 
debilitated in some sort of way. See, it's a whole different spirit that's coming about there. Where's the love? Where's the compassion? You know, laughing stock of painful embarrassment. Why is embarrassment painful? It isn't to the humble man. So you kind of see where Nietzsche is coming from. He goes on to say, You have made your way from worm to man, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now, too, man is more ape than any ape. The overman is the meaning of earth. Let your will say. Let your will say. He's, this is the way he's approaching. The overman shall be the meaning of the earth. Man is a rope tied between beast and overman. A rope over an abyss. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. Well, this is all vanity, what he's talking about. And yeah, we are on a bridge. And the question is, which direction are we going? Are we headed for the abyss? Because <laughs> Nietzsche talks about that too. Before he went insane, he talks about staring into the abyss and then finding the abyss staring back. Nietzsche would have been much better off understanding Christ. There were other philosophers that I will talk about, uh, you know, probably one of the most uh, influential philosophers of the 20th century, Ludwig, who was uh, son of one of the richest men in Europe and gave away all his wealth. <laughs> he gave away all his wealth. And he, he lived a very simple life in many ways. Uh, and he struggled with a lot of things. You know, he was no saint, but uh, he was no Nietzsche either. But yet he had a tremendous influence, even though that wasn't his purpose to have this influence. He was just struggling with the meaning of life himself. And But being of service to other men was clearly a major part of his existence. While Frederick Nietzsche served himself, which is why he got syphilis and why probably some of the things that led, besides the syphilis, leading to his own insanity, was the fact that uh, they used to treat syphilis with mercury. So he was became mad as a hatter, and he died uh, not much different than the age of Ludwig. I don't know, Ludwig was older. No, he was older. But uh, their deaths were was much different. But that was one of the things, like I said, he, he said, whosoever... Uh, fights monsters, shall see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back into into you, not at you, but into you. And that, of course, is what happened to Nietzsche. But it was because he lacked the humility. He lacked the idea of service to others. Uh, why Ludwig, uh, I haven't given his full name yet, but Ludwig would uh, constantly serve other people, constantly try to help other people. He had a little bit of a temper, and uh, and he had to deal with that. But he had this certain moral character and, and self-sacrifice and uh, independence that led him to see more about the psyche of man than probably a lot of other people. And he had a few comments about the soul, which we'll eventually get to probably in the next program. Nietzsche said, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, the only way, it does not exist. 
Well, that isn't necessarily... And you can see that philosophy, how it's come on. There is no wrong answer, according to today's philosophers. So, now remember, Nietzsche's life ended in abject uh, misery and uh, deprivation and insanity. And so, the people who think there is no right or wrong, you know, it doesn't exist... Uh, your destiny may be written in the life of Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who had a really cool mustache, which I would shave off immediately if I had one like that. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, you know, he, he did predict a lot of things. And he was against the God of the modern religion of his day. And I, I'm not in opposition to that idea because I don't believe that they were serving the real God Generally speaking, and God is served by the individual, not by movements, not by uh, organizations. It's it's an individual thing. Seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is an individual thing. But there's a way in which the individual comes together in a free assembly to magnify and edify that presence of God riding upon their hearts and upon their minds. And it's God pulling you up to, I won't use Nietzsche's overman, but to his natural state where he was meant to have dominion over the creation of this world. But right now he shares that dominion with men who have not eaten of the tree of life, but eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're deciding what is good and evil, and we even give them the power to decide what is good and evil, because we will not let God write upon our hearts and our minds, and therefore we end up needing leaders to exercise authority. Jesus would not even say who could sit on his left side and his right side. He said that was for God to decide. How does God decide that? How do we know God has put this person on the left side and this person on the right side of God's government? which does not rule over you, but serves you. How do we know, how, how do we determine who is that individual? Isn't it God writing upon your hearts and minds where you accept that individual and support that individual on that side of God's government? You see, it's back to the individual. The responsibility of God's government is equally divide, divided amongst the individuals who come together in his name, in his character. But anyway, back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche predicted that millions would die, which they did, because of the rise of socialism and communism. And and that is a done deal. But he was not smart enough to know that going to brothels, which is, you know, can give you more than what you were looking for, that pleasure he mentioned. And that's how he got contaminated with a disease that there was no cure for at that time. And there will be no cure again. Because you are not self-creating. You are creating the cesspool, the swamp. Everybody wants to drain the swamp. You know, they want the, the new leaders of government to drain the swamp of government. Well, let's drain the swamp in your own hearts. That will do more. 
You you have to let God rule upon your heart and your mind. And how do you know if he's doing that? Well, are you laying down your life for others? Are you coming together in the name of Christ to serve others? Are you coming together for pleasure to imagine yourself saved? Imagine yourself a believer. Imagine that you're worshiping because you're stimulating a feeling in yourself. That is not service. That is not worship. Worship is actually being of service. You know, like Ludwig. Again, I'm not telling you his last name yet. (laughs) You can maybe look it up. But during World War II, he looked much younger than he actually was. But during World War II, uh, he was at Cambridge. And he, he did not want to. He says, I cannot. You have to give me. Something to do, or I'll, I will die here. You know, I have to be of service. So they gave him a job in the hospital, and he he made it a rule that he didn't want anybody to know who he was. And he's one of these unsung heroes of psychology. Almost nobody knows who he was. <laughs> Yet he was extremely influential over modern day psychologists. Although, admittedly, most people say that he is misinterpreted, and and he even says that. Uh, about people that we all do know the name of, uh, who knew about him at that time. You know, he, he talks about one individual, I won't mention his name, but he says that uh, all of his writings should be color-coded. Everything about mathematics should be coded in red and on red paper and should be read by everybody. Everything he wrote about philosophy and psychology should be coded in blue so that nobody reads it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of his strongest advocates. So, you know, what what was he really writing about? What was he really talking about? You know, he when he was in the war, he was actually fighting against uh, the Allies because uh, he was an Austrian originally. I'm giving more away. But he was fighting against them. Amongst all the men, he, he was given about every award you could possibly get for, get, get for heroism. And uh, yet he was, like I said, one of the richest men in uh, in Europe. Yet he went and fought on the front lines and all the time. But he was known as the uh, uh, man of the gospel, the carrier of the gospel, because he was always going around with a copy and he had extra copies of uh, the gospel in brief by uh, Tolstoy, I guess it is, and, uh, which was basically the doctrines of Christ uh, rather than all the miracles and everything. It was condensed down. He got a, his first copy. He stumbled on in a Polish uh, bookstore, and he just was infatuated with it. And he would share it with everybody that he could. And he was that was the way he was known. But he was also this hero. But uh, amazing individual, unsung hero. Almost nobody even knows who he was. But yet he had this. He understood. He was, and I use him as a comparison because you know you got Nietzsche and you got Ludwig. They completely different people, both geniuses, both looking at the same problems of mankind, both coming up with different answers, and uh, and people are, you know, they actually try to defame him to still to this day, uh, Ludwig, by creating all kinds of scenarios around him that just don't hold water, don't prove anything. Both of these guys talked about dreams and the unconscious mind, talked about psychology and. Uh, and what all this stuff meant. And both of them talked about soul. And what the soul is. 
but they were coming to completely different uh, conclusions. And, um, uh, you know, uh, so I think looking at some of these other people, and we're going to look at a lot of other people too in their opinions of what the soul is, and then hopefully come to some kind of conclusion where you have a little bit clearer picture of what the soul actually is. And we'll actually look at some of the modern uh, uh, philosophers and psychologists, uh, such as Jordan Peterson and, and his view of of things. Uh, and he deals a lot with people who are atheists and uh, and liberals and everything. And he tries to get to the bottom of everything. And he talks about axioms, uh, statements of... Uh, propositions that is regarded as being established, accepted, self-evident and true. These axioms of your belief are not buttonless. In other words, if you poke somebody in their axioms, see if, and this will tell you, if your belief has you or if you have a belief, is your ideology your God? You know, there's a phrase I've often said, love me, love my goat. When I first started raising goats out here, everybody around us had had goats at at one time. And then we came out and we bought a few goats because we had some children and we could get goat's milk. And, and uh, but then the, suddenly goats, uh, our goats were making too much noise or, you know, our goats were this. Now, they all had goats and their goats, some of the, uh, the goats we had were the goats they used to have. But they were very critical of our goats uh, when we owned them, and I thought, like, why, why are these goats bad now that I own them? <laughs> and I, I realized, love me, love my goat. <laughs> you know, hate me, hate my goat. And if you don't like me, you don't like what I say, you'll find fault with my goat. <laughs> so it's the same way with beliefs. Uh, why do you have the beliefs that you have? Why is this bad and that bad and this good and that good? And why do you have these ideologies? And is your belief really a conviction? Is it God's software writing upon your heart and upon your mind? Or is it something else? Is somebody contaminated the software? We go back to those standards. Are you laying down your life for the welfare of others? And like I was saying with Ludwig, he got the job in in the hospital and the job they gave him was delivering medication from the pharmacy to the patients. He would take and bring that medication. Well, he had also studied the medication because he was, I mean, he was, a, he wanted to write somebody in another, who spoke another language. So he learned that language so he could write him a letter. <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of guy he was. He was a genius. There's no two ways about it. But when he would bring the medication to them, he would try to encourage them not to take it. Because <laughs> he thought that it wasn't good for them. But his job was to bring it. But he thought he had the right to explain the side effects of that medication. Because there was a problem with medication even back then. The, the problem has magnified itself in today's pharmaceutica. But, uh, so I, I just, I just find that fascinating. But he wanted to be of service to other people. It was in his nature. He did. That's what gave him pleasure, to be of service to other people. And uh, so when he looks at the 
the axioms of what people believe. And this is, I actually come across this idea, and I'm the one who mentioned that your axioms, are they, are they buttonless? In other words, if I poke you in your axiom, and that's uh, Jordan Peterson brings that up, do you not bleed? Uh, that's my, I'm paraphrasing, you know, Shakespeare. And, uh, and I'm reminded of Morpheus in, uh, the Matrix. Morpheus says, uh, my beliefs don't require that you believe them. And so if your beliefs require that other people believe them, if you take offense to the fact that somebody else doesn't believe what you believe, then your axioms are probably not axioms at all. <laughs> They're not the truth. But anyway, we'll be back uh, later on today, and we'll talk more about this. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.